0: Uh, we're going to dig into the scriptures. We're going to be in 1 Peter chapter two. We're going to look at verses four through eight. I'm going to read them and then pray, and then we're going to dig into this. This is incredible stuff. So uh, let's pray together. Uh, Jesus, we love you. We thank you for uh, just the way that you shape our gospel story. I do pray that we would grow in our understanding of what the gospel is. Like, how do we understand it? What do we believe to be true about all that you've accomplished? And then, how do we How do we live it and speak it so that it has an influence in other people's lives? And I pray that today, um, as we look at this this picture of of who we are because of what you've done, uh, that it would help us wrap our heads and our hearts around uh, this beautiful gospel that you've given us. We love you, Jesus, and we praise you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. All right. Well, I hope that 1 Peter has been wonderful for you. It's been an incredible journey for me. Uh, A couple of things that I just would love to point out as we get ready for this. Uh, Peter is reaching out to people that are scattered all over the place. And one of the things that he's trying to do, it actually comes to like full bloom here in chapter two, is he's trying to help us understand our identity in Jesus Christ, who we are because of what Jesus has done. Now, that concept of identity, it's actually kind of a prolific concept right now. You can see it in a lot of places, even in psychology. And identity has become this, um, this thing that, that's become very difficult for people to understand who am I, why am I here, what am I supposed to be doing with my life? Uh, people have genuinely in our culture struggled to know their identity. And, and one of the things that the Bible has done and Peter does so faithfully is it's given us this laser focus. I know exactly who you are because of what Jesus has done for you, and now what he has declared to be true about you because of what he's done, and it gives you this purpose and this way of living, and it's such an exciting thing to see Peter shaping our identity, not making it, Jesus made it, but Peter shaping our identity around the finished work of Jesus, and it helps us to just kind of, honestly, accept and believe the things that are true about us because of what Jesus has done. And as I said, that that comes to full fruition here in chapter two uh, this week. And then when we come back from Celebrate Generosity, uh, the week's following. So I'm really excited about this. So let me read through this. This is 1 Peter chapter two, verses one through eight. It says, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Now, I love that Peter writes this. I don't know, you could probably count up how many times he uses the word stone, cornerstone or rock over the course of this passage. It's kind of a significant thing because Jesus actually changed Peter's name. Uh, when he first met him, his name was Simon, and then he said he's going to call him Cephas or or Petros in Greek. That word literally means rock, and that's Peter's, that's who he is now. He's been given this identity as the rock, and huh, way before Dwayne Johnson. And you have this picture that that he is bringing the theological elements of the stone, the cornerstone, the rock, uh, all of the things that have been said about the Messiah, he's bringing them to our attention, and it is Unbelievable. So I can't wait to dive into this. All right. First thing, back in verse four, Peter starts by saying, as you come to him. Now, this is a really important thing to see. Peter's writing, and he's basically looking at it and he's saying, All right, for all of you that are followers of Jesus. And he kind of has already defined that as the audience. When he said, And if you call on him as father, uh, that's back in chapter one, verse 17. And so he's been building up this thing of like, all right, I'm writing to Christians. Now, you may not be a Christian. You may not be a follower of Jesus. You haven't done that thing where you've said, yes, I wanna give my life to Jesus or I wanna follow Jesus or become a disciple of, or an apprentice of Jesus. That hasn't been your story yet, but you're here and you're listening. And I hope that even as you're listening to Peter talk to people that have already said yes to following Jesus, it would be so helpful for you as you're trying to figure out What do I believe about this? And what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? And how how would I even go about the business of following Jesus? Uh, Peter talking to Christians can be extremely helpful for you. So I do hope that this proves to be helpful. But one of the things that Peter does is he uses this present tense. And he says, as you come to Jesus, and the, the significance of the present tense, this kind of active tense, is that it just keeps rolling. So this isn't salvation, like your come to Jesus moment, like one time you came to Jesus and, and gave your life to him. This is Peter talking about the like, directional orientation of the life of a follower of Jesus. And the Bible does this often. It talks about that in terms of like our, our motion or our direction. Paul says in Galatians 5, 16, I say, walk by the spirit. That whole idea of like walking by the spirit its as you live your life, step by step, the things that you do, I want it to be done by the spirit. Or Jesus says in John 14, he says, I am the way, the truth and the life. But that way, he goes on to talk about it being the narrow path or the gate. Jesus is giving these pictures of like, this is the direction to go if you wanna meet the father and spend eternity with him, it's through me. And here, Peter's doing that same thing, but he's saying, look, as you come to Jesus, and the indication, the assumption, actually, Peter makes a huge assumption that if you call on him as Father, if you're a follower of Jesus, one of the things that's going to happen to you is that you are going to come to Jesus on a regular basis. Now, why would we come to Jesus? We come to Jesus to confess and repent. When we we confess our sins, he's faithful to forgive us our sins, faithful and just to forgive us our sins, John writes in 1 John. This picture of repentance, we're coming to Jesus because I don't know if it's true about you, but most people, when they give their lives to Jesus, I'll go ahead and say all people, do not instantly turn into perfect, holy human beings that never sin ever again. In fact, I don't know a single Christian that's ever given their lives to Jesus and has never sinned again, We all continue to struggle with this battle of uh, the things that our flesh wants or the influence of the world, the weakness of our mind, and we sin. And so we are in this place where we are continually coming to Jesus, not for more salvation, but asking him to forgive us our sins and to continue to purify us and walk us towards this character of who Jesus is. Uh, we, we come to Jesus with offerings, with our generosity. We bring our, our resources or our talents or our money and we, we lay it down and it's this gift, it's this offering, and we, we bring it to him and, and that's part of our coming to Jesus. We come to him in prayer. How many of you have needed something at some point and you prayed and asked God for it? Well, that's, that's part of our coming to Jesus is he wants us to cast our cares and our anxieties on him because he cares for us. Well, that's us coming to Jesus We come to him and worship. So Peter is assuming that your life is going to be oriented around this direction of continually coming to Jesus. So I love that that's the assumption starting off verse four. Now, Peter, uh, you often see this with biblical authors. It's like they have something that they wanna say and they start writing it down, but then they say something about Jesus and they just can't help it. They wanna go on this epic rabbit trail about who Jesus is. So Peter says, as you come to him, and then he's going to give us more instructions later, but he stops to talk about Jesus, the hymn. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. Peter's bringing in, in this moment, he's like, okay, let's just talk about Jesus for a moment. All of the Old Testament, has been pointing towards this Messiah, this idea of who Jesus is. He is this stone, this cornerstone that's been promised for so long. And Peter just brings it together in this powerful moment to say, yeah, you need to understand this is Jesus. Let me show you a couple of the passages that talk about Jesus as the stone or the cornerstone. This is Isaiah twenty-eight sixteen. It says, therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, I am the one who has laid as a foundation in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes believes will not be in haste. Now, this picture of a foundation is pretty critical. If you've been a part of Anthem, you've heard me tell this story before. Uh, But the house that we bought um, six years ago here in Thousand Oaks is in a neighborhood that's famous for its cracked slabs. Uh, And it's all at the hand of a crooked developer from a whole bunch of years ago. The story as it goes is this developer, he had all the plots, had everything ready for the concrete foundations to be laid, and he put out the the rebar for all the foundations and he got the inspection, excuse me, (coughs) excuse me, He got the inspection. And as, after the inspection happened, he pulled up all the rebar and then poured the concrete foundations without any metal in them at all. And so my house and Every other house in our neighborhood have these huge cracks going through the foundation. Some of them are like falling off and sliding down hills. There's even a story of one of the houses in our neighborhood lifted the house up on jacks, jackhammered up the whole foundation, relayed it with metal in there and put the house back down. I mean, it's like, they're bad. And my realtor tried to talk us out of buying over there and we're like, it'll be fine. But the problem is when you don't have a good foundation, you end up with this situation where all of the walls in the house and the roof, they start to they start to go different directions. If the foundation isn't right, then the rest of the house can't be right. So I don't know, with COVID hitting and we knew we were gonna have to do Zoom classrooms, we lofted all of our boys' beds like a dorm room. So I, I built Tyler's bed up and I was trying to like bolt this thing to the studs of the wall and it's crazy. You, you go down the line and the wall starts to peel away from the wood and it's just, it, that's the direction that the wall goes. So when your foundation is off, everything else in the building is off. And that is the nature of a cornerstone. So this is the next text. This is Psalm 118, 22, and 23. It says, The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. That's Psalm 118, 22, and 23. Now we don't really use this kind of construction anymore, but in the ancient Near East, this idea of a cornerstone was pretty critical. They had to pick the exact right stone to be the first stone or brick that was laid for the rest of the building to be true, for the walls to be right, for the structure to go up properly. The entire building was based on this concept of a cornerstone. If your cornerstone was the wrong stone, then your building would have integrity issues later. It would start to crumble. And so you have this situation where it was prophesied that uh, this cornerstone was going to be the Lord's choice, but the builders were going to reject it. So there was going to be a disagreement about the cornerstone that the next temple was going to be built on. God was going to think one thing and the builders were going to think another thing. Now, what's crazy is that the Old Testament was prophesying not that a new physical temple was going to be built, but actually there's going to be a spiritual component to this, this building that was coming. Well, Jesus picks up on all of these prophecies and he starts talking about them. And in each of the gospels, he references those texts that I just mentioned, and he identifies himself as the cornerstone. This is Luke. I'll give you the Luke example, Luke 20, 17 and 18. It says, but he looked directly at them and said, what then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone.'" Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it'll crush him. Jesus goes on to name himself as the cornerstone. So Peter picks up on this. And in his sermon to the high council in Acts 4, 11, and 12, he says this. He says, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So Peter made the point and the connection like, okay, Jesus was the cornerstone. You, Israel, the builders, you rejected him, but he was God's choice. Now, like I said, we're about to go through the book of John. uh, About to, it'll be next year sometime and it'll last into 2022. But when we go through the book of John, you're going to see this. Like anytime we go through a gospel, You have this group of Jewish leaders that were rejecting Jesus and you think, why did they reject him? It feels like everything is lining up, every prophecy. He's got the power of God. He's feeding 5,000 people. He's walking on water. He's turning water into wine. Why did they not see it? In fact, there's one scene, I think it's John 9, where Jesus spits in the mud and makes a little uh, mud pie out of his own saliva. It's a strange story. Paints this guy's, the blind guy's eyes with that mud, and the guy's able to see. And all the Pharisees can do, all the Jews can do is question, like, well, who put that mud on your eyes? And, and what was the, was it the Sabbath? And they just start interrogating the blind guy. And then they go to his parents and ask him about them a bunch of questions about was the guy actually blind? Like they really just miss the point. And so you find this, this picture of the builders who had been trusted with the building. Well, they rejected the the cornerstone and all of this is showing. I don't know how many of you guys have done DIY projects and you had to go to the city and get like a plan check or anything like that. You have the Old Testament is serving as like God's plan check for this building that he's going to build. He's going and he's prophesying and saying, all right, here's the foundation. This is what it's going to look like. And I'm going to pick this cornerstone and the builders are going to reject it. But it's my choice. It's a precious stone. It's the perfect stone that I'm going to build my building on. Well, now let's go back to 1 Peter 2 and let's look at that building itself. This is where Peter comes back to you. So as you come to him, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now, first of all, Peter is saying, you yourselves like living stones That was what Peter just said about Jesus. As you come to him, a living stone. So Jesus is a living stone and you, like Jesus, are living stones. Let's talk about what that means or what he's talking about there. Uh, When you think of a rock, it's probably the most inanimate object we could come up with uh, in creation. I'm sure there are many. It's not really a competition for inanimate objects, but it's one of the foremost that comes to the front of our minds when we think of inanimate or dead objects. Like a rock's one job, is to just sit there. That's all a rock does. I guess if it's got beachfront property, it tumbles up and tumbles down and eventually becomes sand. But other than that, a rock just sits there. Like that's what they do. A stone, by definition, is just a dead piece of whatever kind of rock it is, granite or, you know, name it. And Peter brings this picture of actually Jesus is a living stone. See, he was dead. Like, dead as a rock in the grave. Jesus wasn't fake dead. He wasn't almost dead. He was totally and completely dead in the tomb, but God made him alive and this resurrection happened. And so now we call him a living stone. So Jesus brought life to an inanimate object. A dead human body has been made alive. So he's a living stone. Well, now Peter looks at you and he says, you yourselves are living stones. Now, what does that actually mean? Because I don't know about you, but I haven't died yet. Jesus actually died and then was resurrected, but I haven't physically died yet. I'm living the life that God entrusted to me. I haven't actually died, but Peter's saying the same thing is true about Jesus, and it's now true about me. I'm a living stone. One of the things that we have help from with Paul, sorry, Ryan, I didn't give you this one, is Galatians 2.20. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who lives, but Christ who lives in me. So Paul's saying, when Jesus died, I died. His death is my death. I don't live anymore, but I've been raised. Paul says this in Romans six, I've been raised to walk in the newness of life. So if you're a follower of Jesus, you're a living stone because you've already been resurrected from your dead form. Paul says in Ephesians 2, you were dead in your trespasses and sins, but God being rich in mercy has made us alive together with Jesus Christ. So we are alive now here in our mortal bodies. We've been made alive. That picture is so helpful and Peter wants us to understand it too. You yourselves, like Jesus, are living stones. You were dead, but you've been made alive power of the resurrection has already been applied to you. This is part of your identity. This is part of who you are. Peter's trying to establish that. You are a living stone, but God's doing something with that living stone. He's doing something with you. You're being built up as a spiritual house. Okay, this picture of a spiritual house or a temple is a powerful picture. A couple of theological things that are helpful. Uh, I don't know if you've been around the scriptures at all, but you've heard uh, maybe Paul talk about that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. He talks about that in 1 Corinthians. It's actually how he kind of invites us to sexual purities. He's like, look, you as a Christian, now you have the Holy Spirit. Your body's a temple, a, a container, a vessel of the presence of God. He calls us in 2 Corinthians, he calls us jars of clay. So us, these earthen vessels, you broken, ugly thing, you contain the presence of the most holy God. Sorry for calling you broken and ugly, but it's just true about all of us. We're in these sinful, fallen, broken vessels, but we're inhabited by the presence of God. We have his presence. So that's one thing that's true about us in our identity is we are containers of the presence of God, all of us, all the time. What is also true is that God is taking each of us, this is all believers for all time in every context in every country, and he's building us up into a new temple. That means that all of the prophecies in the Old Testament that were prophesying this temple, God's looking at it and saying, I'm not building with actual stones. I'm not building a new temple like what you saw in Jerusalem or or what other people have built all over the world. I'm building a spiritual household even uses a different word than temple just to make a clear picture I'm building a spiritual building, a spiritual household. It's being built up with all of you, you living stones. You are coming together and forming this house that is the container of the presence of the most high God. So what are the implications of that? First of all, Jesus is the cornerstone. That means that every block that's being laid in its place is being built off of Jesus as the, as the main picture, as the main line. So he is our course correction. Now, this is something that's really important for us to understand. Course correction is a part of every single follower of Jesus. It's what we need to know and understand is that we will always be course corrected. Paul tells Timothy, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, meaning I need all those things. I need to be taught. I need to be corrected. I need to be rebuked. I need to be trained. I don't have it all together, and neither do you. Revelation chapters 2 and 3, that's the story of God correcting, or actually Jesus writing letters to correct the churches. So one of the things that's true if we're being built up into a spiritual house with Jesus as the cornerstone is that we need to come to Jesus to be corrected and realigned, brought into right relationship and right living all the time. So just have the humility to know Jesus is the cornerstone and that those blocks are gonna be adjusted to Jesus, to his character, to his person, all the time, all the place. That's what I am built on. Second thing is this you are interlocking with every other believer for all time in all places, meaning you need other believers. You can't just go about this thing by yourself. You are interdependent with other followers of Jesus to make up the household of God. So all of us need each other to best represent the household of God. I bring that up because I wanna make sure that in, in our efforts to be the church, One of our key objectives, Paul writes about in Ephesians chapter four, is to make every effort to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. And so our our efforts to be considered the household of God is to make sure that we go about the business of following Jesus and strive for unity with other believers. If you are being divisive in the household of God, that is a major issue. One of our key objectives is to see Jesus as the cornerstone and say, are we aligning with Jesus? And all of us as bricks are being built up into this house together. Okay, so that's being like living stones being built up as a spiritual house, but Peter actually continues and talks about our job. He says, you're being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So not only are you the structure of the temple of God or the household of God, but you are also the ministers of it. This is a crazy reality of your identity in Christ. You are ministers of the covenant of God. Now, a lot of us grew up in a Catholic context and maybe our idea of a priest is very like distant. We just think of priests as those guys, they preach and they minister and they take confession and they do communion. And they're those guys that wear the collar and and do the robe. And and there's like a separation between the priest and the congregation. But Peter is actually trying to obliterate that separation. He's looking at the body of Christ and he's saying, y'all, every follower of Jesus out there, You are the priesthood. Now, what does a priest do? A priest ministers in the household of God. Not necessarily what does a Catholic priest do, but what did a priest do in the temple in the Old Testament? And Peter is saying, That's you now. But we're not offering actual sacrifices like animals. I know it's kind of crazy for us to think about, but there was a sacrificial system where animals were sacrificed. That would have been totally normal for everybody in the first century when they hear about sacrifice. That everything that comes to their mind is like doves and goats and sheep and maybe grain and bread and that type of thing. But it's it's something being burnt and lifted up to either Yahweh or maybe some other God. And Peter's writing and he's saying, look, that's, that's done and gone. Now we offer spiritual sacrifices, not physical sacrifices. So what constitutes a spiritual sacrifice? If you have your Bibles, go over to Romans chapter 12. I want to look at verses 1 and 2. Romans 12, 1 and 2. Paul uses similar language, not the same language, but similar language to communicate this incredible thought. He says, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So he's using almost the same words and he's just kind of mixed them up to say the same basic thing. But then he says this. He says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So see, Paul's saying that you're going to offer your body as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. That's your spiritual worship. And the way to do that is don't be conformed to the pattern of this world. Well, Peter, back in 1 Peter 2, he started off in verse 1 by saying, put away malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy. He's talking about the things of the flesh. He's basically saying, I want you to put away your sinful behaviors and to pursue holiness and righteousness. And these are your spiritual sacrifices laying down the things of this world and taking up the things of Christ. That is what it means to be a priest in the household of God. You're ministering through your righteous living, offering these spiritual sacrifices. But there's more to that. And we'll come back to that in just a minute. So Peter has been talking about this, lifting up these spiritual sacrifices. And then he brings in all the Old Testament passages to help us understand what he's talking about. Because there's a missional component to our priesthood meaning, missional meaning, outward thinking. We are here to bring the name of Jesus to people that have not yet met him. So first he says, for it stands in scripture. This is that Isaiah 28. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. So Peter starts by basically saying, look, this putting your life and your faith in the cornerstone that is Jesus, you will not be put to shame. You can go and you can speak boldly and proclaim that Jesus is the cornerstone and it's your honor. You won't be put to shame when you do this, but it keeps going. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Now, I don't know if language like that is tough for you to hear. You look at this and just think, okay, the stone of stumbling and the rock of offense. Maybe the question has come to your mind like, did God cause the Jews not to see Jesus as the Messiah so that they would crucify him so that his plan of redemption would happen? Or did God bank on the sinfulness of Israel to crucify the Messiah so that the plan of redemption would happen? And you know what? If you've ever thought that, you're not alone. They've been debating that for 2,000 years since the day Jesus resurrected. That question, maybe not the day he resurrected, but you know, like a long time, people have been talking about this. And here you have this picture that Peter dives in and he says, they stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Well, here's the reality, and this is where I think Peter will go to this place numerous times, and the scriptures do. Each of us were destined to disobey. 100% of us were destined to disobey the word. That was where we were headed. When we talk about the way of Jesus, that's not natural. Going the way of Jesus is not a, a predetermined outcome. It's something that only happens when we Give ourselves to the Spirit of God. When He invites us and we receive that invitation, He, He lifts our eyes and it gives us the opportunity to meet Him, to enjoy Him, to be blessed by Him. So what does that mean for going out and actually proclaiming the Word of God? What it means is that everybody out there is destined for disobedience. If you haven't said yes to Jesus yet, you're destined for disobedience. like, And all of the, the, the wrath that comes with that, that's your future. That's the path that you're on. But God is invitational in nature. He's established this cornerstone. And for those that are going to disobey, it is. It's a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Paul writes about it in 2 Corinthians 2, and he talks about how uh, Jesus is either the aroma of life or the aroma of death. It's life to those who are being saved and it's death to those that are perishing. Now, you know, I don't know if you've ever talked about Jesus to somebody that doesn't know him. There are some people that just want to run away and there are some people that are drawn nearer to you. Uh, just as last week on our teaching intensive, I, I went out surfing and... Um, Or boogie boarding, I should say. But I was out there in the water and I I was just kind of hanging out in between waves. I'd talk with the guys that were out there and uh, the set went totally dead. Like there were no waves at all for maybe 10, 12 minutes. And uh, I was talking with this guy out in the water and his name was Phil. We just started talking about spiritual things, started talking about Jesus. He was exploring Buddhism, but he had some understanding of Jesus. We talked about his kids. And again, there's sometimes when you start talking about spiritual things in a situation like that and people would just, paddle away from you or they try and catch a wave. And then the next time they paddle out, they're just a mile down down the line and you don't get to talk to him anymore. But this guy just kept drifting closer and closer. And we just, our, our conversation got deeper and deeper about things that were like, man, Lord, thank you for just flattening out the waves and giving us, I think it was like 12 or 15 minutes that we had to just talk to each other about deep and meaningful things. But you could see that this guy was drawn into it. Like he was hungry for more. He wanted to hear more about who God was and what the significance of God. And he didn't like give his life to Jesus in the water there, but it was one of those things that you just kind of see the Spirit of God drawing people in. Well, everybody's destined for disobedience, but those who will respond with a yes to the Spirit of God when he invites, that destiny is overturned. You were destined for disobedience. Some of you are destined for disobedience. But even the fact that you're here, that you're listening to this is an invitation by the Spirit of God to overturn that destiny and to say, I actually have a different destiny for you. I have life for you. I can give you a living hope. I can take you from being a dead rock, an inanimate rock, and I can make you into a living stone, being built up into a spiritual house, being a member of the priesthood of the household of God. There's not one of us that God doesn't want to do that to. Paul tells Timothy that God loves all mankind, desires every person to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. That is God's stated desire. And the only thing that's gonna thwart that stated desire is the freedom of choice that he gave us. He can present himself to you and you can reject him. You can say no, but that's it. Apart from you rejecting Him, there's nothing else that will stand in the way of God's pursuit of you. So rather than rejecting Him, this is an opportunity in the Spirit of God for you to turn and say yes to following Jesus, to say yes to being made into a living stone. That can happen right now. And I honestly believe that the fact that you're listening to this is evidence that God desires you. His Spirit wants to turn your heart into a living stone no longer a dead, inanimate object. This is the power of God. He loves, he loves you. Before we wrap, I just, I don't wanna, I don't wanna walk away from this without saying one more time, to those of you that are believers, you need to understand, Peter gave you a job and your job is to be a priesthood in the household of God, a priest in the household of God. What that means is that you serve Jesus, and you are qualified to do so. Because of his presence in you, he has qualified you to minister to other people. I was talking with Jen, who leads our prayer team, um, yesterday morning, we met at TO High School and prayed over the school, and I was talking with Jen in the parking lot afterwards, and she said, man, I just don't, I don't know that our church gets that a hundred percent of us should be on the prayer team. Like every single one of us should be praying for people because we have the Spirit of God and we can pray for people. If you are a follower of Jesus, you have the power and the presence of Jesus to minister. That's what you have today. There's nothing else that you're waiting. I mean, you can be trained and equipped and built up and all of that, but by the Spirit of God, you have been qualified to minister as a priest in the house of God. You're not waiting for anything else. I love that. I mean, there's, there's nothing male or female about a priest. That picture, sometimes we just have men as priests, and that's sort of the, the picture that's been given to us. But Peter's writing to men and women and saying, you are the priesthood in the household of God. You belong as a minister of the new covenant. There's nothing stopping you today from carrying the presence of God into the life of another person. I just want to pray this ministry over us. I want to pray for those of us that don't know Jesus, just inviting you to respond to the Spirit of God. And for those of you that do, responding to the commission to be priests in the household of God, to minister to others from the presence that he has entrusted to you. So Jesus, thank you for bringing us together, for giving us the opportunity to serve you, to minister faithfully, to walk with you. I just pray that uh, you would take people today, Lord, that are listening to this message that don't know you, whether they're from Thousand Oaks or they're watching from Hyderabad, India, Lord, I just, I pray that you would invite them in your spirit to turn their hearts over to you, to say yes to becoming a follower of Jesus and being filled by your presence and your power. For those of us that have said yes to you, again, whether that's here in Thousand Oaks or in, we'll just say it again, Hyderabad, India, they that we would be filled with your presence to minister to others, or for their, those in, a, in an unreached place, that they would uh, start churches in their home, invite people to uh, to pray and experience your presence. That your power would flow through them. There would be miracles and signs. That there would be healing, Lord. That there would be opportunities for people to come to faith because they see your power and your presence. For those of you that are in uh, places like Thousand Oaks, where many have heard the name of Jesus, would there be? bold declaration of your power and your presence, holy living, righteous living that leads people to faith in you. Lord, we want to be people that are here for the purpose that you left us here to fulfill. I shouldn't even say left, that you sent us here to fulfill. Help us to walk faithfully in your name. We love you, Jesus, and we praise you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.